that we had a little bit of a separation in the messages that I've titled the same thing. If you look at your handout on the back side of the bulletin, if you have one, I titled it the same as what uh, the previous two messages were, even though we had a one-week break in there, because the texts all run together. They all, uh, they all connect together. I've been entitling them, The People Confess and Repent. And uh, what we dealt with in chapter 9, we had two messages out of chapter 9. Uh, we talked about the, largely the confession of the people, but uh, the point out of the case I would like to make to you today is that uh, you can't separate confession and repentance from each other. You, you, can't, you can't say, I did this, but I didn't do this. You can't have confession without repentance or not true confession, or you can't have repentance without confession either, I suppose. But uh, typically, it's the other way around. We typically uh, want to acknowledge something and not change anything. And uh, that doesn't have very good results, for soon enough, we find ourselves in the very same situation that we were in to start with, of why we needed confession to start with. Uh, so this morning, we're going to reach back one verse in chapter 9, and then we're going to read all of chapter 10, which is, again is a, is a really long section. I don't, I don't typically do such long sections. There is another long list of names, and so you understand that those names, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about them. I'll read them, but we won't spend a lot of time talking about them. So follow along this morning, uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, which is the last verse, and then all of chapter 10 is what we're going to read through. Because of all this is how it starts. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And then verse 1 of chapter 10, on the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah. Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Melchijah, Hatush, Shebaniah, Maluk, Harim, Meramoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mijamin, Maaziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah. These are the priests and the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benui, the son of of the sons of Henadad, Cadmiel, and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kalita, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Benin, Beninu, the chiefs of the people, and then they're going to name these chiefs, Perash, Pahathmoab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Azgad, Bebai, Adonijah, Bigvai, Adin, Ater, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashum, Bezai, Harif, Anatoth, Nebai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hazir, Meshazabal, Zedak, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Aniah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Halohesh, Pila, Shobek, Rehom, Hashabna, Maasiah, Ahiah, Hanun, Anun, Maluk, Harim, Ba'ana. Needless to say, of course, you know I did not pronounce all those names correctly, but they were real people who had real names. Verse 28 now continues in chapter 10. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. 
And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a, on any, on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. Verse 38, and the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers, and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this text this morning. Thank you for the book of Nehemiah. Thank you for your word. Help us this morning to uh, work through it in a way that helps us to understand what's happening back then, but it much more so in a way that helps us to understand what you want from us this morning. We believe as we meet together, God, that you have, in fact, a desire to uh, not only impart knowledge to us, but to give us direction for our lives, to remind us of things, to shape us, to change our minds about things. And so we submit to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to begin. There's really only one major point of today, which is the covenant that they're making and the obligation to that. But we're going to begin with the very first verse that I read because this is the place that sets off why we're doing what we're doing, why we're talking about what we're talking about. Because of all this. So because of all what? If, I, if I'm going to start a message with those words, because of all this, we have to remind ourselves because of all what? Because of all what? Now, I'm, I realize I'm asking you to, to go back a couple of weeks, and maybe you weren't even here at that time, but to go back a couple of weeks. But I, I, you know me, I'd love to have interaction. I'd love to make sure you're paying attention, not falling asleep out there, and, and, and are, are engaged in the message. So because of all what? Why did they say this? Because of all what are they making this covenant, and they put it in writing? What was the problem? What's that? Okay, it began by them reading the Word. And as they read the Word, what did they discover? See how well you've been paying attention to this. This reaches back, back a number of weeks, actually. What did they discover as they began to read the Word? Yeah, several of you said the same thing. They were guilty of transgressing. They were realizing that they were not doing what they should have been doing. And then as a response to that, what did they do? Yeah, the first thing is, that's what we were a couple weeks ago. They confessed. All of chapter 9 is their great confession, which I remind you focused a lot more on who God is than it did on anything else. 
which is what makes up good confession. And by the way, I think I said this, but I'll just say it again because you need to hear it again. Um, it's not that hard for us to confess both our sins and our need for God if we spend adequate time recognizing God for how great he is and who he is. It's really not that difficult. If you've done it before, you realize it's actually almost impossible not to do that. Because if you are truly focused on who God is and how amazing he is and how pure he is and how holy he is, it doesn't take a lot for you to figure out that I'm not any of those things. And I need him so desperately. So that's, that's why that, that confession really focused on the greatness of God. And out of that, they said, God, all these things that have happened. This is sort of a key from the last time we were together in this text. All these things that happened, whose fault was it? Whose problem was it? Who was right and who was wrong? That's what they said, right? In all of this, God, you have been 100% right, and we have been the ones who were wrong. Which means in all of that, we deserve every single thing that we have seen in our lives. Oof. Does our confession go to that depth? Everything that has happened to us, God, is right because you're righteous and we have acted wickedly. And they ended that by saying, because of this, uh, because of the, all the things we've just confessed, we are slaves today. We are enslaved. And we don't want to be. And then they say this. That's where we're starting today. Because of all those things we just, we just kind of did together. Good job, by the way. We, we recognize all the ways we were falling short. We confess those things. And we acknowledge that the slavery we are in, the bondage we are in, is because of our wickedness. So God, we want to change that wickedness. We don't want it to be like that anymore. And that's what we're going to get today. Because of all this, we're going to make a firm covenant in writing. And they meant it enough they were sincere enough, hear this friends, they were sincere enough that they put their names down on paper. And guess what happened? Through all the rest of time, people can pick up the Bible and read the names of these people who made this confession and this repentance. We struggle so greatly to ever say anything in front of people who love us, right? Who care about us of the ways that we have fallen short of God's glory. These people wrote their names down. They said, I don't care if the rest of the history of mankind knows this is who I am. I want to point out before we jump into this that this constituted the people that, look what it says about them. All of those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. And this is the break that we should see. This is what makes up repentance, by the way. Repentance is to change your mind. That's a big part of confession. And then to turn and to change your direction. And that direction is an, is an, is an effort to say, I'm going to separate myself. In this case, they said the peoples of the lands. But what that means is the world from the ungodly things of the people of the lands. I will separate myself from those things, and I will separate myself unto the law of God. If I can encourage us, by the way, to think of repentance exactly in those terms. When we confess something, and then we should repent of that thing, it is to see ourselves separate ourselves from that thing. To turn away from whatever that was, and turn to God and His way of doing things. That's what sin is, right? Sin is not doing something according to God's way. 
So when I'm going to repent of that, it means I'm going to turn away from whatever I was doing and turn to the way of God. In a general sense, we can summarize this covenant that they're making with these words. This is from verse 29 now. This is what they wanted to do. They wanted to walk in God's law. Now, I, I skipped some parts so I can just read the whole thing. To walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. Now, I, I'm going to find this to be a very interesting discussion uh, that I'm about to have based on the discussion we had in Sunday school this morning. And I, I love how God works these things together. And, and at first, it may seem like we're speaking in opposition here. But I want to point some things out. This theme, this necessity uh, of, of the people to change their minds about where they, who they were and who God was and whether they were right or wrong, and to change their, their position or to change their direction to separate themselves, this, uh, this, this idea is not a new idea. When God gave the law to start with to Moses, he said this in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 32. He said, you shall be careful. You shall, you shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall walk in his way. And lest you this morning think, well, that's an Old Testament thing. That's the Old Testament law. We're not, we're not bound. That's, that's no longer what, what, what God is interested in. I remind you, still Old Testament give, given, but it's talking about the new covenant. In Ezekiel, God says, here's what I'm going to do when I establish a new covenant with people. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And, by the way, just to kind of continue that on through, the words of your own Savior, who should be the ruler or Lord of your life, he said this. Jesus said in John 15, 14, we read, he says, you are my friends. How? How do you know if you're Jesus' friend? If you do what I command you. God's heart hasn't changed in that. And I make this, I made the comment, maybe I should just flesh it out. I made the comment, it's very interesting because in, in our Sunday school class this morning, the lesson was a great lesson, by the way. We, did, we didn't even get close to getting all the way through it. We could, have, we, could have, we could have stayed there the entire time that we're in here yet, I think, and talked about the lesson this morning. Uh, but it was a, it was a discussion centered, centered around the fact that we get legalistic about things and, and we have to understand what are the essentials of salvation. But here, again, we, we have to put all this together and recognize that is still God's heart for us. It's not, we don't do this, and you've heard me say this, I think. We don't do this, we don't obey God in order to be saved. We obey God because we are saved. Because we have been justified by Jesus Christ. So we do still have the same outcome, though, is to obey him, is to walk according to his statutes, is to do what these people were doing, to separate themselves from the peoples of the lands and to separate themselves unto the law of God. And they said, we're going to put our names down and we're going to write down exactly what those obligations are. Very few times in our lives, in my life and in our lives, do I see, brothers and sisters, a commitment that goes to the depth of these people in terms of saying, I will write down exactly what I need to change to be right with God and to walk faithfully before him, and I'll put my name to it. How many of you are willing to do that? How many of you are willing to sit down today, this afternoon, and ask the Holy Spirit to identify things that are not right in your life that you have not done correctly? I suggest you, by the way, it begins with reading this just like it did for them. Maybe it doesn't have to be in one day because this, 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 this developed over a month's time frame. 
but to sit down and to say, I have now realized how far I'm falling short of what God has asked me to do, and I am, I'm, I'm dedicated enough to doing what God wants me to do that I will put down some specific things in paper, on paper, that I need to change, and I'll put my name to it, and I'll make, I don't care who sees it. These are things that, I, that Merlin needs to change in his life to be faithful to God. That's not just a rhetorical statement, by the way. As in, like, it's a great theoretical thing. Maybe we should actually start doing that. Hey, we entered this discussion of the book of Nehemiah saying we want to rebuild, we want to reform the identity of God. We want to put walls up where they need to be put up. We want to keep out there what's supposed to be out there. We want to keep in here what's supposed to be in here. And we want to have a sure identity of who we are as God's people. If we're serious about that, then we're not talking about exterior walls. We're talking, I've told you this over and over again, we're talking about what God is doing inside of us. Right? Jesus said it's so clear. He almost said it scoffingly. He said, you clean the outside of the cup all the time. You don't realize it's what's inside that's making it dirty. That's a little bit of my paraphrase. Clean the inside of the cup and the outside will be clean also. Well, what were the obligations of this covenant? I love this because they were very specific to their time frame. And yet I think from each of them we can distill down some principles that speak to us today that if I were to give you some points of application, that you could say, oh, I can take this home with me personally and with my family and with our church. I can take this home and I can say, here's something that I need to work on. Very first one, doesn't take us long to find application, I don't think. We will not give our daughters, I phrased each of these, by the way, with the we will nots or the we will, the obligations they put down. There's a lot of, maybe some stuff around some of those, but I wanna focus on, I found six of them in this text. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. We will not do that. Now, you could, by the way, at your first most basic, most literal way of applying this would be to just do it exactly what it says. It's that, that we won't, uh, we will not, uh, well, let me just finish my statement before I interrupt myself with this. We will not allow our sons and daughters to get married to people who are not believers. Now, you're gonna right away look at me and say, well, we don't have control who our sons and daughters marry. And that's probably largely in our culture is true, but I would like to encourage you to say, I don't think that's how God intended it to be. So maybe some other things have to change first. But we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land, and we won't take their daughters for our sons. We will, if we're separating ourselves from them, then it clearly makes sense that the very first thing we will not do is to just go right back and intermingle with them. By the way, direct command from God, so they're obeying what God has commanded them to do, is to not intermarry. You see some interesting scriptures about this in the book of Ezra, if you want to find a parallel to this. It happened with a previous group of exiles, but where there was intermarriage, and they forced them to get uh, separated, to be separated from each other. But there's more, th there's more behind it than just saying, well, I don't want my daughter to marry a non-believer. I don't want my son to have a non-believing wife because that, that intermingles. But what's the reason why? What we're really concerned about with this obligation is a concern or a commitment to purity and to holiness. We will not intermingle the things of God with the things of the world. That's what you're really talking about. It's a commitment to, uh, to that separation that, you just, that I just talked about, that we will stay separate from each other. I will tell you, ultimately, it's a commitment to putting up our guard against the inevitable creep of idolatry that comes into our lives. 
for that's really what that's really what the issue is when God said don't intermarry with the nations around you it was because he recognized that that would be the inroad of idolatry that and you read it I mean, you read the Old Testament read Kings and, and Chronicles and that's exactly what happened they got married to people outside from other, other, other belief systems, and they brought in their beliefs, and, and it began to worm its way in, and finally the nation of Israel was worshiping Molech. And God said, I can't have this. The same is true for us. What this means on a far greater level than just literally, like don't have your sons and daughters get married to non-believers, is that we have to be aware that if we're going to be pure and holy before God, that we have to look at those things that allow idolatry to come into our lives and not intermingle the things of the world and the things of God. And that is a much more broad, expansive topic, is it not? One that I can't even go into this morning, but I think one that we should be having conversations about. It'll be a little bit like the conversation we had in Sunday school this morning, recognizing that it's in those details, what it means to be sanctified before God, that comes the rub. Because people have different ideas and convictions and preferences and things like that. Are we willing to have honest discussions about it? Recognizing that we're not all going to be in the same place. I, I, I can assure you we're sitting in a room full of people. We don't all have the same ideas of what, what, th what, what that open-door idolatry is. I would hope that we're willing to listen to each other about those things. Because I can tell you there's some things that I may have gotten right and I can share with you, and there's some things I've missed that you can share with me. I would tell you this is a topic of utmost importance in our families. What are things that you do or don't do or ways that you look or don't look or activities you participate in or don't participate in or devices you have or don't have or whatever, things you engage in that you or don't engage in, what are those things that are opening the door to that inroad of idolatry to where suddenly there's a mixture of where your allegiance really lies? That's what idolatry is all about, by the way, allegiance. Your allegiance to God or to something else. I could... I could give you some examples and they'd be things that I see clearly and you could give them right back to me because there's things in my life that are true that I have a blind eye to, right? Running for a long time in my life was one of those. I love running. I still run today. Not nearly as much as I used to, but, but it, was a, it was an allegiance that I gave my heart to that wasn't right, that stole it away from my allegiance to Jesus Christ, my Savior. I also am... Very, very confident that I don't have to give you a list. Because if you will but for three seconds listen to the Holy Spirit, you already know what those things are in your life, if you're willing to. And if you're not willing to listen, it doesn't matter how many times I say it in front of you. It won't do any good. I'm grateful, by the way, this morning for a congregation that wants to follow Jesus. I believe that about most of you. Many of you, I'm not saying that to, to say I don't, I, I'm just saying I, I think as on a whole, I'm, I, I'm blessed to be a leader of a congregation where, as far as I know, all of you want to follow Jesus, which means I'm confident that you'll be willing to take some time and ask him those questions. But to say to God that I will not open doors 
that will allow idolatry or things that steal my allegiance to creep into my life. The second thing is he said, we will not buy from them. If people bring something in to sell on a Sabbath, we will not buy from them on a Sabbath or on a holy day. Again, it's, a, it's, a test, it's, a, it's testifying that I will be obedient to what you asked me to do, God. And there's a whole other discussion again about what it is with the Sabbath, what it, what it is about the Sabbath day. I believe this is a commitment to worshiping God, to saying that it is worth my time to set aside my daily activities and to worship you, God. And I take a day to do that. On that day, I won't engage in the things I do all the other days of the week because I think it's important for myself, not for you, God, but for myself to refrain from all of my daily activities all week long to say that I think you're worth it, God, to put my emphasis, my focus, my, my devotion, my worship towards. It's also, a, it's also a statement of trusting in God, right? You understand that. Some of these, by the way, are going to overlap. It's a commitment to trusting in God. For you might be tempted to think that if this opportunity has come by to buy or sell something that it, and it's here today and maybe they're not going to be here tomorrow and then I can't. Then I've lost the chance. But it's a commitment to trusting in God to say, you know what? Then I, that, that God is going to take care of me. If I don't buy or sell this thing that on, on today, because today is the day I've set aside to focus on worshiping God, then I won't do it. But I want to tell you also, there's a far greater subject here, because when Hebrews talks about Sabbath, it does not refer so much to the things, the physical activities we're doing. It talks about the fact that we have got to stop trying to save ourselves from our works, by our works. There is a Sabbath rest that remains, and it's for us resting from our ability to save ourselves. And a Sabbath commitment, like they're making, is us agreeing with God and saying, I will stop trying to save myself from the things I do, and I will rest and glory in what you have done for me through Jesus Christ. I will rest in Jesus. I personally believe this is an area that I have much to grow in, and I believe it's an area that we as a, as a culture have much to grow in, in understanding true Sabbath rest. What does it mean to really rest? Is it the things I can or can't do on Sunday? Or is there something much greater and deeper behind that? Along the same line, it comes in the same verse, but I separate it because it's a separate obligation that I think is an entirely separate issue as well. They said, by the same token, not only will we not buy or sell on the Sabbath, even when people come in their city and want to do that, we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. It was known by them, by the way, if, if they were paying any attention anyway, it was known by them that one of the reasons uh, for the length of time of their exile was to make up for all the years they had not honored the seventh year uh, rest for the land. That's why it was the number of years it was. God told, I think it was Jeremiah, God told Jeremiah that, that exact phrase. He said, it's for this many years because that's how many years the land needs to rest uh, because you have not been doing it yourself. The Sabbath year, not the Sabbath day that I just talked about in the, in the last part, but the Sabbath year, every seventh year to let the land lie fallow. Now this, of course, is an even greater commitment to trusting in God. Have you thought about that? What does that even mean? Can you really say that for a year you are not going to, for them, sow or reap or harvest, so that, uh, which means like your livelihood and your ability to eat, you'll live off just what the land is going to produce all by itself without being touched. 
And, by the way, it's a statement of allowing the poor people in your land to have access to those same things that you have. It's a great equalizer. And it's equalized in many of the levels. It's not just the land we're talking about. Because the second part they bring up is that that date and that year, then you, I, I forgive debts that people have against me. Like I literally do. If they owe me something, I say, nope, no more. I struggle. I struggle to find how, what God has in mind for us today. Because we don't do anything even close to that. Nothing even close to that. If you're a pastor or a leader of some kind in a, in a nonprofit or in a church setting, then you hear these terms like sabbaticals and somehow we take them. But I look around and I look at, nobody else takes them. I haven't heard any of you talk about the fact that, you know, hey, I'm going to take this next year off. I'm going to take six months and do something different and not earn any money. And why don't we? Why don't we? Oh, this goes so deep, doesn't it? It goes so deep in our cultural understandings and, to be honest, in our own flesh, our own hearts. But I got to tell you, this whole thing of this for us as we're applying it to us today, I mean... We got to move the discussion beyond even just tangible things because I believe what this is first and foremost is a precursor or a foreshadow of a teaching a commitment to forgiveness in general. That I will make it a practice that when someone, when I have something against someone, when, they, when someone owes me something, I will forgive them. And that, of course, goes far beyond the tangible, right? Because most of our needs for forgiveness are not monetary things, they're not getting my land back or getting a few tangible goods back that I was hoping that I had loaned to somebody and they didn't get it back to me. I'm gonna, I'll just forgive them for that. Because most of our issues of forgiveness have to do with our emotions and our hurts and the things that happen to us. The unkindness that people show and the words that they use against us and the way they mistreat us. What does it look like for the people of God to reform their identity and say, we will forego like getting what's ours, and we will forego the exaction of every debt. We will forgive. We will choose to say, I forgive. I bear the cost of what that person did. I'll pay it for them so they don't have to. That's what forgiveness is, by the way. We understand it in a monetary sense, right? If you owe me $100 and I forgive you, that means I paid the $100. But we don't always understand it in an emotional sense. If you hurt me and I forgive you, that means I bear that emotional pain so that you don't have to pay for it. We could go into the New Testament discussions that Jesus talked about that uh, if we refuse to do that, who's really in bondage, right? The parable of the unforgiving servant tells us clearly that when we choose to not forgive, we are actually kept in bondage. We are thrown in until we will pay all of our debts. I don't think we have to go into the details of that story, but um, when are you going to pay your debt off to God? Come on. I, heard, I saw Harley say it. I mean, I heard it saw her mouth. What would you say, Harley? Never. Never. That's how long you'll be, remain in bondage then, if I understand Jesus' teaching correctly. <laughs> you see, these aren't just things that people saw long ago about their cultural norms and not selling on a Sabbath and foregoing crops. And these are principles that God put in place for a reason to teach us what it means to be the people of God. 
And I'm going to tell you, if you don't already see this, this is a separation from the way the world does things and to the way that God does things. Because nobody in their right mind, in their right mind in the world, operates based on this. Nobody. That's foolishness to them. But guess what? God said that's exactly how it is. Foolishness is God's wisdom. What is foolish to the world. Now, many of these so far we've read were sort of internal things, things that, that, that they were committing individually to do, maybe as a family too, but individually. But now we're going to see some things that they commit to as a community together. And I, 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 again, you've heard me preach. Most of you have heard me preach enough to know that I, this is a theme I bring out all the time. We read the Bible and we interpret our walk with God far too individually far too individually. We think it all has to do with just what God is doing with us and in us and through us and that's it. And yet over and over and over and over again in scripture I see that God has intended for this to be worked out in a community of believers. As a group of believers, not as individual believers. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. And there's a whole list that's going to come out of that. This is where they spend a lot more time developing it. We're not going to necessarily, I'm not going to take time to do that necessarily because a lot of that is focused on their specific or cultural or their religious or their, their Jewish worship of God. You can dig into it. You can go back and read in the, in the, in the Pentateuch, uh, the first five books of Moses, as to why they were saying the things they're saying and how they're describing this. But I want us to know that this is a commitment to being obedient to God and to recognizing that they live outside of themselves, that there's a community. Look at what they did out of this. They said that we'll provide our individual share to help take care of the house of God, but also we'll work out this schedule. You know, simple thing, like a wood offering. They're supposed to have wood there to continually have, uh, have a, a fire burning before God. And at one point in, in Israel's history, there were plenty of temple servants, and it was no problem because they got the wood. Now they were left with just this, this, this small, fledgling group of exiles, and they say, we'll take that responsibility upon all of us, if, if I understand the text right. They divided it, not just the priests and the temple workers, but all the people said, we'll take our turn. We'll go out and we'll cut some wood and we'll bring some wood to the temple and we'll, 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 we'll just divide it up. This week is your, your family's duty. This week is your family. This week is your family. But together we understand that we have to together worship God as a community and we'll do our part to do that. I'm, I, they're, they're saying I'm done with just being, being like slipping in, being part of it and helping, helping everyone else does all the work. I see myself as part of this group that is worshiping God together. It's a commitment to community, to being part of a body. And you've probably heard me say things like this too. It's something that even in our Mennonite culture, our, our, our roots and our upbringing that we have has traditionally been such a strength is something that we struggle with. It's something that we'd rather just do things ourselves. Something that we'd Rather say, well, I'll give what belongs to the church when the church does what I want it to do. When it acts the way I want it to act. Can I just tell you, <laughs> we, we don't get that right. We don't get that prerogative. I have no doubt, I have no doubt that there have been decisions made by this church here that you have not liked. No doubt in my mind. Guess what? That's true for me too. It's 
This gets a little bit on shaky ground, perhaps, because you may answer this differently than I would like you to, but, you know, if your spouse starts not doing things that you like or starts disagreeing with you, does that mean that you're relieved of your obligation to her and you can walk away? Or obligation to him and you can walk away? Is that what that means? Now, I'm not, understand, I'm broad brush painting here, but it's a similar idea here. You have to know that not everything that's going to happen here in this body with this even small group of people in light of all the people in the world is going to go exactly like you want it to go. It's because we're made up of different passions and interests and ideas and things like that. And I'm not also not calling you to unquestioning obedience to everything. Because what I see here is in community, they heard the word of God. And in community, they understood that they had fallen so far short of it. And in community, they confessed. And in community, they repented and said, we are going to change it. Let's keep moving here. The next one's all kind of tied together. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits. And I just put a dot there. It actually goes through and, and defines what those things are. In fact, they go to great detail about that. It's not just our crops. It's our sons. It's our firstborn of our animals. It's our fruit. It's our, it's our plants. It's our vegetables. It's our, the dough. We, it's everything, everything we make. And the point of this is a commitment to uh, obedience, of course. It's a commitment to love and worship God. It's a commitment, most of all, of ownership. The whole principle of first fruits is a commitment to understanding ownership properly. Who owns the things that you have? Who gets first rights to the things that you earn? Whose is that? Again, the world will very clearly tell, that, tell you that that belongs to one person, one person alone, right? And that is to you. I hope this is not news to you. <laughs> scripture does not say that. In fact, Scripture says the opposite. You are owned by your Heavenly Father. We don't like that. I'll, I, I, I phrase that pretty specifically because we don't like that. That, that gets our... That gets our uh, <laughs> we don't like that. By the way, God owns you for two different reasons. Do you know that, Right? I've probably said this before, but I'll say it again this morning. He owns you for two different reasons. First of all, he created you. So by rights of creation, he owns you. You're his. He, you belong to him because he created you. you are the, he is the reason you exist. He's the reason you continue to exist. He owns you by rights of creation. He furthermore owns you by rights of redemption because he has redeemed you through Jesus Christ. He has paid for you. He literally bought you with Jesus' blood. You may not always know that or understand that or like that, but it is still true. He bought you by Jesus' blood. You belong to him twice over. He owns you. As your owner, what you have and what you earn and what you create, we don't really create anything, but what you create and what you amass and what you put together, and, and those belong to him first and foremost. He's a gracious God, and he gives you 90% of it to work with. Let's put it that way. He gives you most of it to work with if you want it. He expects us to be good stewards of it, doesn't he? Jesus told several stories that back, what I, back up what I'm telling you. He expects us to be good stewards of it. But it belongs to him. 
And the principle of first fruits is a principle of love and devotion and adoration and worship because you're saying, I will give you the best. I will give you the first. But it's at, at the root, it is a principle of ownership to say, I recognize this does not belong to me. It belongs to you, God. And so I give it to you. You, it's yours. Now, some of those things actually God gives back to us and allows us to be good stewards of them. Some of those he actually, we actually give away, give away. Take your children, for instance. You don't actually sacrifice your children to God in terms of like literally. You don't give them to him literally. But this is why we do things called baby dedication. Hopefully that's what's behind that is we give you the principle of first fruits, God. We honor first fruits. We say they, that they're from you and we give them to you first. You, you get to be in charge of them. I can tell you it's a whole lot easier when they're little babies in your arms standing up here than when they're teenagers. Or when they someday are going to get married as I'm looking at my children. Or when they're talking about what they're going to do when they get married. Or where they're going to go when they get older. Many of you have experienced far beyond my years of exactly what that means. Other things when we give first fruits of, we actually let go of and don't get any benefit out of it at all. Enough of that. Let me close with this last one, which is sort of a summary statement, but it's also a, a commitment they were making that I want to honor, an obligation that they made. They said, in all of this, in all the things we're talking about, bringing firewood, uh, dividing up the temple duties, uh, bringing our tithes, our first fruits, recognizing all those things that God set up, in all of that, we obligate ourselves that we will not neglect the house of our God. We believe that what God has established in the way he has asked us to worship is worth it. We will be obedient to him. The statement is pretty straightforward about what they mean, right? And for us, again, today, we could bring this uh, literally over into us and say that we will put first, uh, if you want to talk about a literal building kind of thing, that, that we'll, we'll, we'll take care of that. We'll put, our, we'll put our share in of taking care of a building like this. But I would remind you that... Um, when the New Testament talks about the house of God, it is not talking about a building. Paul would write to the Ephesians that you, referring to people, you are being built into a house, a spiritual house. So you could, at uh, one great level, you could apply this to say, we're not so much asking, I'm not so much asking that you need to commit yourself, although it's nice if you do, but I'm not so much asking that you need to commit yourself to this physical building as again, it's a statement of commitment to this body of people. What does it look like for us to not neglect this house that God is building? I think it means that we care about each other. Like more than just lip service, care about each other. We love each other. We connect with each other. We're interested in seeing what is happening in people's lives, not just in passing on a Sunday morning when we're really just hoping they're gonna say, I'm doing great and walk on. But that they that we understand that every one of us has things that we're facing this week, difficulties, hard things, joys that we're gonna celebrate this week. Do you know what those are? As you would look around the room, do you know what those are for the people that go to church with you? Do you understand the heartache that some people are walking through? Do you understand the joy some people are, are, are celebrating? Do you even, are you aware of those things? Please may I remind you, this is a two-way street. This requires you to uh, care about people and really want to know what's happening in their lives, it also requires you to be open about what's happening in your life for those that do care so that they know. It's impossible for people to know what's happening in your life if you will not share those things, right? We're not all mystics. We can't all read people's minds. So just talk about it. The good, the bad, and the ugly. A commitment to not neglecting this house that God is building.
By the way, one more uh, way of applying this verse uh, very directly is also uh, the temple of God is quite literally now your own body because Jesus' spirit wants to reside in you. So a commitment to not neglecting the house of God where God dwells is a commitment to uh, not neglecting this. And that can take all kinds of ways, but it's just a recognition, I believe, first and foremost, that that's where the Holy Spirit is dwelling. Have you thought, by the way, this is a little aside as we finish the message up here. Have you thought recently, have you stopped to dwell on the fact recently that uh, there's an incarnation inside of you, that, that there's a Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, that, that God goes with you when, when you go somewhere? Brother Ebby talked about that, by the way, when we were at a prayer retreat, that uh, things changed in his life when he began to realize that God is, is dwelling here. Yeah, he's here. He's inside of me. He's not out here. He's here. May we also be committed to not neglecting the house of our God. Well, we've come to the end. These were the repentance uh, obligations, commitments that uh, these people made. I've tried to help us see today how we can make them, but I cannot force us to uh, make these same kind of steps of repentance, to take these same kind of steps. It's up to us to decide whether we will together as a community respond to God's word and allow that to happen. Of course, I encourage you. I hear good conversations happening already. Let's have more of them. But let's not have it just conversation. Let's change things in our lives. When we recognize that this isn't right, let's be willing to put a name and paper to it and say, we're going to change it. We're going to change it. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to allow this anymore. I'm going to start doing this. And by God's grace, together, we will continue to walk faithfully for him. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you so much for your word. I have no doubt, God. I, have, I've just, I, I just know this with everything I have this morning, that, that there could be so many more words said and that probably some of the things I said didn't come out clearly or weren't, I, whatever. There's so much more that could be said about this. And I also know there's so many other ideas that all of us have, and I, I don't reject that, God. I, I, I receive the fact that your Holy Spirit working in each of us brings about different things, and we need that. Today we heard just from me. God, we want to hear from you. We want your spirit to be working in all of us that together we are the body of Christ and together we are, uh, as, as Colossians would tell us, that we, we are proclaiming Jesus and warning uh, each other and exhorting each other and encouraging each other in Jesus. I thank you, God, for the way that your word and the truth of what happened many, 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 many years ago, these people of God, can still be brought through the, the, the pages of time and, and, and affect us and apply to us. I pray, God, for a spirit of humility among us that we may yield ourselves, that we may sincerely search out your word, but sincerely allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate your word to us and the things that ought to uh, be in our lives or ought not to be in our lives or whatever, whatever those things are. God, that I pray for humility and a brokenness before you among us, in us, myself included, that we would not harden our hearts or stiffen our necks, but that we would recognize that the places of bondage that we feel face, the places we have fear in our lives come from our own wickedness, not from your faithfulness and your righteousness, but that you are there and that you will change those things in us when we surrender to you and allow you to have uh, more complete control over us. I pray, God, for our sanctification, that we might grow in Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.